Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of the Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net for more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis. Visit sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Heather McGee about the economic, moral, and spiritual costs of racism. Heather is an NBC News political analyst. She rarely elevates the concerns of working families on shows like Meet the Press and Real Time with Bill Maher. She has testified in Congress, drafted legislation, and developed strategies for organizations and campaigns that won changes to improve the lives of millions of people. Her upcoming book, The Sum of Us, you got to read this, folks, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone, How We Can Prosper Together, is available to pre-order now from One World, an imprint of Random House. She is the co-chair of Color of Change, the country's largest online racial justice organization, and volunteers for numerous other boards in philanthropy and social justice. So, Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so pleased to be with you, Jim. So, welcome to the soul of the nation. Let me start, Heather. How is your spirit these days? Hmm. Thanks for asking that, Jim. I um, you know, my my heart is heavy with grief. Um, thankfully, my immediate family members and friends have been spared, um, you know, death from this pandemic. But I I grieve for our country. I grieve for Black and Brown people. I grieve for single parents who are struggling with this burden. For people who are facing eviction and foreclosure and the loss of their businesses and dreams. There's so much loss and so much of it is so, 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 un- so avoidable um, that it's, it's heavy on my heart. Um, that will say that I will say, however, that I also live in a city right now. And in fact, just as I was traveling this weekend and seeing black lives matter written on hand-drawn signs and yard signs, posted up on the back of strollers is just, it's really uplifts my spirit. And so this of profound mass movement and consciousness raising is, is a balm in Gilead for sure. So much avoidable loss and yet a balm in Gilead at the same time. You and I have been discussing these things for a long time, and now we're listening to more people and more white people for the first time saying, Racism is bad. Well, all that's good to hear. But you say racism is bad for all of us. Racism is bad for us. It's not just bad, it's bad for us. Black and white, for all of us, it's bad. It's bad for us. It does things to us. What do you mean by that? So I I came at this question originally in the beginning of my career uh, from an economic policy vantage point, the guiding question of, of my public life and my professional life has been, why is it so hard for so many people to get by and get ahead in one of the richest countries on earth? And everywhere I turned, I kept coming up against explicit, often implicit, institutional, often systemic, often strategic political racism, which is the fundamental 
belief in a hierarchy of human value, that some groups of people are simply better than others. And it's the belief on which this country's economic system was founded. It's the lie that was spread at the start of this nation with its cruel economic formula of a zero-sum relationship between indigenous people who who held this land and owned this land and cared for this land and indigenous peoples from Africa who were brought onto this land and stolen for their labor and and white people and the people who would soon become white over generations. And that original zero sum is at the heart of race relations and it's at the heart of an unequal economy in which you see the people who are profiting from the system doing so in ways that fundamentally extracts uh, not just income and wealth, but also, you know, hopes and dreams from the mass of people. And so why is it that the racism costs us all is that fundamentally we have, I think, as a country and, and most specifically white people have bought into that zero sum still today and what is the central metaphor of the book that that you referenced, Jim, my book, The Sum of Us, which will be out in a few months, is the the public swimming pool, which used to, in the middle of the century, be a fixture of most American counties and cities. And when they were integrated by decree all over the country, not just in the South, so often towns and counties drained them rather than letting Black children and families swim too. And it feels like that's where we are today. And this pandemic is just such a profound illustration of a society in which the racism that keeps our economy and our politics stingier and poorer and refuses to share across lines of race has boomeranged back to impact us all. So I talk about the economic costs, but of course you and I, Jim, have had really profound conversations over the years about the spiritual costs and the personal costs as well. Well, we're going to get to that. Then we have this, so you've been working on this issue for so long, and now you're co-chair of Color of Change, which is doing so much terrific work. But what opportunities now does this new moment and hopefully new movement present that perhaps weren't possible before this uh, awakening, as some call it, which we hope will become a reckoning <laughs> we've seen since the murder of George Floyd. This moment now appears. So in terms of that perspective, what does this moment and hopefully more than a moment mean as you see it? So according to the New York Times, it's the Black Lives Matter protests and demonstrations of the past uh, two months has made it the largest movement in American history. 40% of American counties, that's over 1,300 counties across the country in every state. 95% of those counties are majority white. We have seen over 100 protests per day ongoing um, for over a month. And I think we have to remember that this is happening at a time when people are holding a lot of fear about the personal and about being in crowds and being out in public. But at the same time, the coronavirus pandemic, I believe, really set the stage for these protests because, you know, our highly individualistic 
culture. And Jim, you've talked about this very much as sort of part of the the lie of whiteness, this idea that we are these disconnected individuals who can pursue our own goals and gains at the expense of others. You know, that culture is is perpetuated in our just the way we have very few things that Americans actually do together that aren't around consumption. And when our entire society ground to a halt and we stopped for the same reason, and we changed our lives for the same reason, I think it activated a latent and dormant sense of interconnectedness. Um, I think the fact that we're in a contagious pandemic made us realize that we are only as secure as our neighbors. And I think the the threat uh, and experience of, of illness and death made things very morally clear for, for millions of people. And so this is a watershed breakthrough, consciousness raising, and more importantly, action taking moment. So you asked Jim, what's possible now? I think everything's possible. I mean, what's so exciting is that in many ways, the pandemic showed us that things that we totally took for granted, right? The idea that, of course, uh, you know, our our airlines would would stay at maximum capacity. Of course, we'd be working from offices. Of course, we'd be taking public transportation and and ride shares. Of course, all of our stores would be open. Anything can change, and so, of course, something as man made and as man perpetuated as the systems of of racism can change. We've just never truly, as a country, set our minds to it in a sustained way. And I do believe now we are at a tipping point moment where the majority of white people for the first time, and this was not the case of the civil rights movements, but of mass mobilization moment, um, the majority of white people are saying, all right, Let's do this. Let's finally see what a new America feels like. I think you're so right. And because of the pandemic, we were all watching. We were all watching. And that just doesn't happen very much. And so somehow watching eight minutes and 46 seconds has led to a conversation about 401 years. We've never seen that before. You, the civil rights movement comparison is very interesting, what you're saying. In a recent NPR interview with the station Detroit, you said that the Black Lives Matter movement has become more popular than it's ever been, more popular than the civil rights movement at its peak, even among white, even among white people. Say more about that. That's a very interesting comparison. We, in our wildly ahistoric culture in the United States, love to remember the people who agitated us and pushed us in a very different way than we experienced them at the time that they were agitating and pushing us. You know, the violence, the physical violence that white middle-class suffragettes experienced at the hands of our government and people sanctioned by the government. Of course, you know, now we would never think about that. It was just sort of a few parades and we got the right to vote for women, you know. Um, um, you know, similarly, the way we have whitewashed and sort of sanctified, you know, the civil rights movement, which was a, a, a lovely looking seamstress sitting down uh, at the back of a, a, a bus and, and changing everything. You know, that's not the way it was um, there. And I think it's really important because the whitewashing, the the sort of po- posthumous glorification of our society's agitators allows for contemporary people to pretend that 
they back in that time would have had a clear moral stance with the agitators. And that I think is a a temptation that allows people in the contemporary moment to justify their own ambiguity or hostility towards the agitators for t- of today. So often in conversations with white people about uh, Jim Crow and about slavery, you know, they act as if, of course, they would have been one of the good guys back then. And what we forget when we when we embrace that logic is how much the justifications of white supremacy morph and change and how there were always what is lost is how much the justifications for the status quo always evolve and change and that there were reasons that good upstanding moral white people gave themselves and their children for why segregation made sense it was about crime. It was about poverty. It was about God's will. It was about the natural order of things. And when you focus on what the possible justifications could have been, as opposed to just saying, oh, people in the past were evil, then you might start to recognize some of those same justifications for the status quo today. So when you talk about, I, mean, I, I think you're exactly right. And uh, I've been having the same observation in watching the protests in the street or being part of these, these when you see thousands, thousands of, of, of people, and I've never in my life seen more white young people involved in struggle against racism. Uh, protests under the leadership of young people of color and young white people out there by the thousands. I've never seen that before. And you talk about what do we tell our children, and I'm living at home with my two boys now, and um, and watching them and how a younger generation, its as you know so well, things change when a generation says something is no longer tolerable or acceptable. That's when things change or, or possible to change. And a new generation is saying, no, this is no longer tolerable or acceptable. And it's a, it's a whole different conversation then just as you point out, even even many black churches weren't really strongly involved in the civil rights movement. <laughs> there was battle even in black churches, but certainly white people were very uncertain about the civil rights movement uh, for most of its life. And here is a whole new generation saying, we're not going to accept this anymore. That's the hope that I see in the middle of this. Absolutely. And and honestly, if it were just young people, I'd be worried because we don't have time for young people to grow into political power. But it's also changing among older folks. You really do see a tipping point happening in your generation, Jim, of people who may have felt like things had been taken care of in their teenage years. And now, so obviously they are not, and they are asking what to do now. In the past few weeks, I've never before heard white people say America's original sin so much. (laughs) That's been just in so many conversations. Now, we've had lots of good, good conversations about what that means for reform of the policing system, reformation, transformation, and broader criminal justice reform, and systemic reform in education, and housing, and all the rest, systemic 
racism in all our systems. But your focus has often been, always been on the economic cost of racism. And COVID-19 has really verified what you've been saying for years by the unequal suffering of this terrible disease and how structural things and, and sort of inequities, racial inequities and and different ways of life uh, experience have contributed to this incredible disparity. Uh, people dying, getting the disease three to one, black people three times white people and dying two to one and more. So in all of this, what what can come out of this inflection point that you're speaking of, this this moment of rethinking, as you say, for not just young white people, but older white people. But what does that mean systemically? How can we come out of this with a more equitable and just economy that helps to overcome generations of wealth inequality? And where do you think the focus of the movement should be in terms of shorter and long-term reforms and really fundamental structural change, the economics of all this? That's what that's what I think you can help us with. Well, when we think about the cost of racism to uh, our economic lives, we really do have to recognize that the fundamental belief in a hierarchy of human value is the rule for our economy, right? We we conduct our economy as if it's great for wealthy people to have more money in terms of tax cuts, but it's bad for poor people to have more money in terms of more government assistance. You know, we we order our economy as if the CEO of Walmart is worth $10,000 an hour and his colleague stocking shelves is worth $7.25 an hour. I mean, that fundamental hierarchy of human value that was set in motion at our founding when we so devalued um, the humanity of Black and Indigenous people that we, you know, created an economic system that was totally founded on their exploitation and immiseration. You know, we haven't actually uprooted that belief. And so what would it look like to come out of this crisis in which we have deliberately, for health reasons, taken our economic engine off the tracks and now and now have an opportunity to put it back on in a in a fundamentally different way to remake it before we restart our engine what would that look like i think the COVID-19 disparities you're talking about i think it's so important for us to recognize this is not about some biological difference between black and white people or brown and indigenous and white people it's really about the pre-existing condition of racism and about the quality of jobs and the quality of housing and the quality of health care that people have differentially based on the color of their skin and how their communities have been treated over time and so we need to first of all obviously um, since we know that healthcare is so bound up in our economy, we need to have really, truly universal healthcare in this country. If you live and breathe in this country, um, you deserve to be able to go see a doctor. And that's important not just for the health of you and your family, but for your neighbors as well. We need to have robust truly supported childcare and paid family leave um, because obviously, and paid sick leave, because obviously this, this pandemic has shown us how much all of the economy rests on the, the, the care labor at the heart of our economy and at the base of it. 
Um, we need to make sure that the eviction crisis and the foreclosure crisis that is barreling towards us as the eviction moratorium was ended without any federal action on July 1st. We need to obviously, you know, immediately pass legislation to to extend that, to extend the the unemployment insurance, to extend the all of the parts of the economic recovery and to make them better as the House has already done and it's awaiting Senate, you know, Senate passage. But we need to fundamentally recognize that we have uh, an affordable housing crisis in this country. And so it is meant that people are are doubled and tripled up in housing that is not healthy. And we need to have a, a massive new homes guarantee that makes sure that the really the unfinished business of the latter half of the New Deal, what Roosevelt called in his final term, the second Bill of Rights, which would have included things like truly universal health care and homes and a jobs guarantee to rebuild the country. Um, we need to have those come as the way that we recover from, from this Great Depression um, that is happening and that is going to get worse before it gets better. And and we need to do it in a way that the first New Deal did not, which is make it not only equitable and not racist and exclusionary the way so much of the first New Deal was, but actually make it more supportive of Black and brown communities who have been hardest hit both historically and by the malfeasance of our government today. So we won't deal with America's original sin unless we deal with the economics of that original sin and structurally change that going forward, I hear you saying. So you're so clear on the economic costs of racism and how economics must be transformative going forward, but you also speak about what you say are the spiritual or moral costs of racism. Say, as you've been exploring all this and researching this for your book, what are you finding as the spiritual and moral costs of racism? You know, Jim, I, you know, as I've said, I'm I'm an economic policy person. I deal with charts and graphs and data sets and, uh, you know, policy recommendations. And, and yet, as I was traveling the country for the past three years, writing The Sum of Us, I, I kept coming into these quiet moments with people where, you know, they would talk about their research or they would talk about the, the economic data that they had discovered, but we'd sort of get quiet. And there would be before the end of the conversation, some moment where talking about racism elicited a, a vulnerability and a personal dimension to the conversation that often got quite spiritual was just the sense that on a fundamental human level, this is not the way we're supposed to be. And so unsurprisingly, when I decided to include a chapter on the spiritual and personal costs of racism, I, I called you, you were one of the first people I called, Jim. And, you know, I think if we think about racism as a belief system that was made to support a fundamentally immoral economic system and a and a, and a, an economic system that did not benefit the vast majority of people then we can realize that our our stubborn holding on to that belief system even after the economic system stopped failing us even after the the original justifications which were biological were refuted is just it's foolish 
And it's also temporary, you know, in human history. And it's also something that is fundamentally incompatible with seeing the face of God. And you speak to this so beautifully in your book, America's Original Sin. And 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 I talked to, over the course of the research for the Some of Us, you know, Muslim leaders and Buddhist leaders and uh, Jewish leaders, you know, working through what white supremacy does to the relationship between a person and their God. And um, it was a, a, a damning set of conversations that really made clear that we are all bearing um, so much of our humanity and our connection to the divine is 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 diminished because we live in these systems. It's really about the image of God, that first chapter of Genesis, uh, that we're made, all of us, in the image of God and how racism really throws away Imago Dei, throws away the image of God, and that has deep consequences for us. And you've been so clear on the economic costs and finally what it will take to transform racism economically. And yet you're raising these these deep questions. And it's personal, I, a very powerful moment when you had that call from Gary. You were doing, doing a book show and Gary called in uh, and that moment has gone viral, which be, it became very personal, personal for him. Tell us what happened there and, and why, because that ties into the spiritual moral costs. It gets, it's got to get personal at some level for us to really make the changes that we have to make. What happened when Gary called you on that show? Yeah, I was on uh, C-SPAN's Washington Journal and I was answering calls, you know, live calls from listeners across the country. And it was mostly the conversation was about economics and politics and policy. And, and this man called in identifying himself as Gary from North Carolina. And his first words were, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. And then he went on to talk about his fear, uh, particularly of Black men and gangs and drugs and crime. But then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, but I want to change. And I want to know what your guest, meaning me, can, can tell me to do to become a better American. And I responded to him truly off the top of my head and from my heart. And I thanked him for being honest about his prejudice, because that's a very powerful first step. And then I gave him some ideas, you know, about how he could sort of integrate his life and unlearn um, the teachings of, of prejudice and racism. And and our exchange went viral. I mean, it's really been seen by some counts in different iterations over 20 million times at least. And And I think it hit a nerve because, you know, a lot of white folks saw it and were identified with Gary and wished that they could have an experience of admitting their prejudice and 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 having a black person respond with with empathy and and with a productive way forward and then i think a lot of people of color saw it and and you know were happy that you know we're not just being gaslit all the time and that would admit, of course I have these prejudices. Look at what there is to consume in the media about you people. Uh, you know, of course, it's the, the idea of Black criminality, of, of, of immigrant criminality is, is marketed and sold at a, on a daily basis. So of course it's, it's bought. But, you know, I, I then got to know Gary over the years since that conversation happened on, on air. And um, 
what he revealed to me is that the reason why he picked up the phone to call was because the murder of the mother, Emmanuel Nine, in Charleston, South Carolina, had really, as a Christian man, had really broken him. Um, you know, the idea that someone would walk into Bible, Bible study and, and sit and pray and then slaughter innocent uh, people. And he really had a, a pretty profound experience of empathy, of sort of imagining that those had been his grandparents. And, um, you know, it just, it made him get in touch with his humanity in a way that broke through the the programming of uh, racist sort of demonization and, and, and belittling of, of Black life and Black people. You know, Gary isn't perfect. None of us, none of us is perfect. He's been on this journey of changing his life now for many years, but he also has sort of daily uh, seductions on Facebook and on Fox News that, you know, try to make him continue to sort of blame people of color for their own, you know, injustice, unjust, unjust circumstances. You know, there's it's really hard uh, with Donald Trump in the White House for white people who are sort of in his demographic base to break free of the logic of his lies and the logic of the of the propaganda machine that surrounds him. Um, so it's a it's a constant struggle, but it is a worthwhile struggle and getting to know Gary and seeing how personally he felt like if he didn't get right about this, as he said in his own words, it would kill him. Like the social anxiety, the the fear, the the distrust was hurting him was a revelation to me. If this is as systemic as we're saying it is, any transformation has to be integral, integrating of all of this to what is so systemic. You mentioned the media assaults that are seductive to white people playing on their fears that continue constantly. And now the White House constant, uh, literally defending Confederate monuments and flags from the White House. So this conversation could lead to the kind of transformation that I remember you and I once talked about years ago in a public session about we were both very suspicious of this term American exceptionalism because of the way it's used and abused all the time. But I remember you saying that if we ever made the real choice to become the first real multiracial democracy in the world, that would be a way for America to become exceptional. And that really struck me. That stayed with me because we haven't made that choice. We, we have not made that choice to become, and every time there's progress, there's pushback, and Trump is part of the pushback. And so whether it's always just progress, pushback, progress, pushback, or whether there's a choice that's going to be made that would change everything, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, change everything, that will have to be economic and spiritual and moral and all of that. Uh, It'll have to be police reform, criminal justice, everything would have to change. And yet that's what we're talking about, everything changing, and that would be truly exceptional. It would have to change, but at the same time, you know, this pandemic has shown us that we can, if we feel like the crisis is threatening enough to us all, we can upend our lives. We can change everything. 
And I think the pervasiveness of racism in our society shows that it is actually easy for a belief to shape all of the ways in which we operate and all of the rules that we live under. And so if we uproot that belief, if we truly see um, the image of God in one another and we truly ask, does this policy, this policy that, for example, you know, keeps white school districts funded at $23 billion more a year, more than majority of color school districts, does that truly see the image of God in, in, in children of color? Or, or does it really express a belief in, in white superiority? You know, you can ask those questions all across our policymaking and the answers are, are readily apparent. And so it's not hard. It will take public will. Um, but we have the will to keep incarcerating. We have the will to keep fundamentally, you know, doing things that I think are, are self-sabotage to our natural national interest in the name of this belief that I, that is why my book is, you know, the, the subtitle is What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, because I truly do believe that if we experience solidarity across these these illusory lines of, of difference, we actually will prosper more, all of us. Hmm. I love it, it, these COVID, sh- you know, shutdown home dinner conversations with my two young boys who talk about the new founding or refounding or a different founding of America. It's, it's really that fundamental that we have to deal with. And you mentioned your book, and I want to finish with a question about your book, because I think your book's going to be really critical to this conversation. The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone, and How We Can Prosper Together. What's at the core of this book, which is coming out just at the right time after the election, for us to think about what does it mean to refound, really, uh, another founding of this nation? What is it you want to say to us about what the Sum of Us could do? I have found in this journey that I have taken over my career and over these past few years working on the Some of Us, that whenever people experience real human connection across a line that they've been told is a dividing line, gender, national origin, language, you know, this this sort of illusion of, of... a fundamental difference, there is a revelation that comes. There is a restoration of a sense of humanity. There's a peace that transcends the lies, that transcends the fear. And there's a conviction, you know, of a fire, I think, for creating a better world. And as I went and talked to, over the course of this book research, hundreds of people, I could see the difference in people who had really sort of had that experience and, you know, whether they were black, white, or everything in between, um, and who had learned to trust and love and, and move in action and solve problems with people from different backgrounds, whether it was a white and black factory worker at a car plant in in Canton, Mississippi, or whether it was a Somali and uh, white, you know, Franco-Canadian uh, main, mainer, as they call themselves, um, in, in 
a former sort of dying mill town in rural Maine. Um, I talked to all of these people, whether it was a Laotian uh, immigrant, refugee who had, you know, worked hand in hand with um, Black American internal migrants uh, from the South during the Great Migration, them and their descendants and cleaning up their communities from environmental pollution. I, I really met these people who who had changed for the better because they had experienced what I call the solidarity dividend um, and had seen what the sum of us could really be and how much more human and therefore how much closer to to the divine they they all were. Heather McGee, you are one of the best social analysts we have in this nation, but you just showed us this isn't just analysis, this is a calling. This is a calling. You're really based on the best analysis. You're really giving us a calling to make this choice, which will make not just this country different, but our lives, all of our lives better. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. To hear more from Heather McGee, follow her on Twitter at hmcgee and check out her website, heathermcgee.com, where her new book, The Sum of Us, is available for pre-order. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you for the Soul of a Nation. Thank you.